We're going to begin a series on Sunday nights in the Gospel of Luke. You know there's 24 chapters in the Gospel of Luke. So you can only guess how long it's going to take us to preach through the Gospel of Luke. <clears throat> we haven't even tried to see the end of when it might be in the planning. All I know is we're starting. <clears throat> so uh, we're not going to do, try to do anything crazy like one chapter a week. Hopefully we'll do at least one verse a week. <clears throat> or it will take us until the Lord comes. Well, there is so much information about the Gospels. There is so much to think about here near the beginning of our New Testament that it's really hard to determine where to begin. But I want to, instead of looking directly, jumping into the first chapter of Luke tonight, I'd like us to take a few minutes and think about the Gospels in general. And it may be that there are some folks here who uh, are newer in the Lord and maybe haven't studied through their Bible as much. So I hope we can give some helpful background here. And perhaps even if you have been saved for some time and have studied uh, your Bible, maybe we can share a few things here that will help encourage you and, and help you on the way. I liken Bible study to doing jigsaw puzzles. Do we have any puzzlers here, jigsaw puzzle people? Okay. Okay, so two of you are going to understand my illustration. So I don't know how it is at your house, but uh, I grew up in a house where we did jigsaw puzzles. We tended to do them in the wintertime when there weren't, wasn't grass to mow and beans to shuck and corn to shell and all that kind of stuff. But um, we, we got out a card table or mom would clear off the dining room table and we dumped the puzzle out. And what was the first rule? You had to turn all the pieces over first, right? You, 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 you couldn't get two pieces and start trying to fit them together. You had to turn all the pieces face up first. And in the process, hopefully, you were smart enough to separate the edge pieces from the inside pieces so you didn't have to do it twice. And then you start working on the edge. But somebody, sure enough, would start working on something else in the puzzle instead of the edge. You know, that red barn in the middle, that yellow bush over on the side, the blue sky, you know, somebody would start finding some of those pieces and put them together outside of the frame. So the genius was later going to have to pick them all up and try to move them to the middle without them falling up. You know, okay, so spatulas, cardboard. I've seen a lot. Cookie sheet. But it was very, very important to keep the box. Yes? yes? At least the picture from the box. So you at least had some clue what you were supposed to be looking at. Hopefully tonight, we're going to take some time to study the box, the picture on the box, as we try to put Luke in its context as we try to open the pages of our New Testament and begin a study, hopefully we're going to be able to give you the broad picture here that will help you to put some pieces together as you read through the Gospels. Before we go on, how many of you in this room were saved through the reading of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John? How many of you are saved through reading the Gospels? All right. Through the preaching of a passage from the Gospels. Anybody? Saved through the preaching in the Gospels. All right. They're not called Gospels for no reason, right? The good news of who Jesus Christ is. When 
we read literature, we go to the library, or you download stuff on your Kindle, or whatever, there are many different categories of literature that people like to read. Some people like to read poetry, some people like to read history, some people like to read biographies, some people like to read cookbooks, some people like to eat the food that the people cook after they read the cookbooks. Some people never read. You're going to have struggle growing in the Lord if you are not a reader. We must become readers. But in all of the literary forms that men have developed over the years, there's nothing in the world quite like the Gospels. The Gospels are not strictly biographies, but they're all about one man. The Gospels are not strictly history books, but they're historically accurate and include a great deal of information. The Gospels are not documentaries. They're not a news story. And yet, they contain very accurately researched eyewitness accounts of events condensed greatly, but they're not quite documentary reports. They're like nothing else. And as I was thinking about that, I also began to think about the opening pages of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, Leviticus is, is different. Uh, I don't know if any of you ever at some point said, I'm going to read through the Bible, and you got as far as Leviticus, and there your engine died. It happens. Leviticus is, is different. But Genesis and Exodus start out... They're, they're narrative books, but they're not just narratives. They're historical books, but they're not just history. They're theological books, but they're not just theology. They're biographies, but they're not just biographies. They're, a, they're this amazing blend of God giving us his interpretation of what he has been doing in history in the lives of some key people so that the people to come later, named the nation of Israel, would understand their history and how they got where they were. There's no other literature quite like it. And so it is with the Gospels. God gave us a form of literature by which these men who were, who were writing by the inspiration of the Spirit of God could give us an account of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the work which he did, the people to whom he ministered, this theological significance of what was happening, and the long-term results that were anticipated in the prophetic sections of the book. The gospel is a unique literary category. And when the ink was dry on John's gospel, that literary form has never been duplicated. There were others who tried later to write gospels, false gospels. But only these four have been recognized by the church for nearly 2,000 years. And so as we think about these books tonight, we have four different human writers, human authors. Matthew, a Jew. A Jew who worked for the Romans. That puts him in a special category. A tax collector, despised, disliked, disloyal. Ironically, he's the one who writes about Jesus as the king of the Jews. Do you see the irony there? The Jew who worked for Rome, presenting Christ the king. Matthew. And then Mark was a young man uh, whose family uh, lived in Jerusalem and uh, uh, may have been part of the family where uh, the upper room was in their home. But acquainted with Peter, Mark no doubt knew Christ. He heard him preach. He saw him in Jerusalem, was familiar with him. Uh, but Mark was the companion of Peter and is writing Peter's accounts, eyewitness testimony of who Christ was. Luke was a medical doctor, probably not even saved until well into the New Testament era. 
became a traveling companion of Paul. A Greek, probably. A well-educated Greek. And then there was John, a fisherman from Galilee, with evidently a fiery temper. The sons of thunder, James and John. Oh, that guy said something I don't agree with. Lord, can I zap him with a thunderbolt? Sons of thunder. You know, that doesn't come across in John's writings later in his life. He has mellowed by grace. He's the apostle that talks about love more than anybody else. These are the men. These are the men who wrote the opening sections of your New Testament. Well, uh, a huge portion of your New Testament, really. These are the men whom God chose. Men who were personally acquainted with, or in Luke's case, conducted firsthand interviews with eyewitnesses of everything that's written in the Gospels. Eyewitness accounts, reliable testimony. Why are there four Gospels? Why are there four Gospels? The most likely explanation, I think, is not that there were four good writers in the New Testament, not that four is the perfect number or a number of some significance. There's all kinds of theories on that. But I think it's because God was addressing different groups of people through the different Gospels. And this uh, is on your chart there, the identified intended audience. Matthew was obviously writing to the Jewish people, a Jew writing to the Jews about their Messiah. Mark, writing from Rome, or writing in Rome probably, companion of Peter, was writing to Gentiles, especially to the Romans. And so he doesn't bother with a lot of the Jewish information. There's no genealogy. He doesn't bother with that. The Romans don't care what some Jew's genealogy is. But you find Mark as the shortest gospel using the words immediately, showing sudden, obedient service of the servant of God. The Romans would be impressed. Luke, as a Gentile, writes a gospel to the Gentiles. He does include some Jewish things, but he sometimes explains them for his audience. And he writes about Jesus as the Son of Man, ministering to all who come, not just to the Jews. And then there's John. There's nothing uh, like John in any literature. John is not like Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Some people call Matthew, Mark, and Luke the three synoptic gospels, uh, synopt looking the same, that you're looking through the same lenses in a sense. When you're reading Matthew, Mark, and look, there's a lot of similarities. And then you open the book of John, and this is completely different. If I remember right, there's only two of the miracles of Christ in the Gospel of John that are included in the other Gospels. John has completely different material. He has different teaching. It's, it's not a different kind of teaching, but it's different speeches that Christ made, different sessions of teaching that aren't even mentioned by the others. And John has a theological depth that is just incredible. And it has a general evangelistic appeal that would, that would appeal to all mankind, not just to Jews, not just to Greeks, not just to Romans. But it has an appeal to all. And isn't it interesting how many times we've turned to the gospel of John to share the gospel with someone we know? These are the men. These are the audiences to which they were writing. <clears throat> I want to take a few minutes and, and go to each of the Gospels just to highlight a few things uh, tonight. I know we're going to be studying Luke. We're going to be spending time in Luke. But it helps us uh, sometimes to put things side by side and look at them. Uh, if you will, turn to the book of Matthew. We'll just take a few minutes here in the book of Matthew. 
Now, if you have a good study Bible or some other resources, you can find a lot of this information in those places. Um, there's nothing I'm going to say tonight is unique to me. It's all gleaned from other sources. But notice how the Gospel of Matthew opens. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Oh, I wonder what Matthew thinks of Jesus. He's the Messiah of Israel. He's the son of David. He identifies him with the greatest king in Israel's history. And he is the son of Abraham, the father of the covenant. That is a very Jewish statement, is it not? Matthew is writing to the Jews. David had been Israel's king 1,000 years before Jesus was even born. And yet he identifies him not as the son of Joseph, not as the son of Mary, but as the son of David. It's going to recall immediately some of the covenants of the Old Testament, the covenant language of the Davidic covenant in the book of Samuel. Notice Matthew chapter 4. I'm just going to highlight a few things along the way. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew is going to mention the kingdom a lot, more so than other gospel writers. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. He is concerned that the Jewish people understand that God is offering them the kingdom. The Sermon on the Mount is often called the kingdom teachings of Christ. That's chapters 5, 6, and 7. And uh, those standards of perfection and so on uh, are the expectations of the king teaching his people. As we go through the gospel in uh, chapters 10, 11, and 12, the Lord Jesus Christ is doing miracles. He's traveling and teaching. He's sending out the 12 for service. And in um, Matthew chapter 12, the Lord Jesus Christ cleanses a man from demon possession, delivers a man from demon possession. And the crowd, notice what the crowd says in verse 23 of Matthew chapter 12. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? They're trying to figure it out. They're trying to understand. But the Pharisees, when they heard this, said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. And many believe that this is a turning point in the gospel of Matthew Verse 25, knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I by Beelzebub cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom of God has come because he just did what he said. See how clear that is? Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? He's saying, if I just cast out a demon, that means I've already conquered Satan. So you know I'm stronger than Satan. Who am I? I'm the king. I'm the king of Israel. I am God in the flesh. It is then he, he talks about the unpardonable sin. And from this time forward, he is going to do less of ministry to the larger masses of people in Israel. And he's going to turn now in the rest of the book of Matthew and spend more time teaching his disciples and his closer associates and followers than he is to the larger groups. Now, he's still going to preach a few times to large crowds. But the focus is now, I've presented the kingdom. The people have rejected it. The leaders have rejected it. I'm preparing my disciples for the kingdom aspects of the ministry that lie ahead. And so you have this element in the Gospel of Matthew. Notice here in chapter 12, while we're here, in verse 42. Um, well, let's go to 38. 
back up a little bit. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation to judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here, is here. The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it. Who was the queen of the south? The queen of Sheba, who came to visit Solomon almost a thousand years before because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Solomon reigned at the peak of the Old Testament kingdom. He also led it into its decline, but that's not the point here. A greater than even Solomon is here. So you see, Matthew is presenting to Israel their king. And he goes on, it is Matthew uh, who records the extended portion in chapters 24 and 25 of the kingdom that is going to come, all the prophetic elements uh, of, of that sermon. And it is also Christ who records in Matthew 27 that the sign that was put on the cross over Jesus' head, determined by the Roman officials when they mocked him, scourged him and crucified him. They crucified him as the king of the Jews. Written by a Roman. Matthew includes it to get his point across. This is our king. And then Matthew ends, with trying to wrap up here with Matthew. Matthew ends in chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, the passage we call the Great Commission. And the first thing he says, all authority is given unto me. How much? All authority. That sounds like a king to me. Jesus spoke with all authority. And so Matthew is very clearly teaching the Jewish people that their Messiah had come, and of course they rejected him. And I still find it ironic that Matthew is the one doing that. I just think that's a special little twist of, of, of God's, God's humor there. Take a tax collector despised by the Jews and uh, let him write the book. But, you know, that was so much like so many of the gospel writers if you've ever noticed this, they point out often that it's the Gentiles who are listening to Jesus while the Jews are rejecting. It's a Samaritan woman. It's a Syrophoenician woman. It's a Roman centurion. These are the ones who get it. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But these others who were despised by the Jews, they got it, some of them. Well, we come to Mark, Matthew, and then Mark. Mark probably was writing Peter's eyewitness accounts. We see some of the reflections of that even in Peter's epistles, the parallels and similarities. Peter obviously was one of the first uh, of, of Jesus' disciples. He was the first to publicly recognize him as the Messiah. And Mark writes to show us that the Lord Jesus Christ fulfills all of the servant requirements of the book of Isaiah. There seem to be a lot of allusions and references and background of the book of Isaiah in the book of Mark because Isaiah wrote about the servant of the Lord, referring to the Messiah. And Mark writes that Christ came as the servant, the servant of Jehovah. So there seems to be a strong uh, connection there between the book of Isaiah and the book of Mark. Um, I mentioned the fact that the word immediately is used many times in many of these accounts. Uh, Jesus was going here, and then he went here and did this, and he went there and did that. And, and if a Roman is listening to the account of a servant's 
responsibilities and performance. He doesn't want the details. He just wants to know, did he do what he, did he do the job? Did he do the job? Did he do the job? And so that's how Mark is writing this account. The Lord was serving people, and many times it's recorded in the book of Mark that Jesus was so busy healing people, he didn't have time to eat. His compassion is stirred on individuals and on crowds because he saw crowds who were like sheep without a shepherd. He was healing the sick, relieving people of the anguish of suffering. He was giving people relief by his touch. Mark includes details about the compassion of the Lord that are not included in other Gospels. He talks about the little daughter, the woman who had spent everything on the doctors and was not benefited at all, people who begged him earnestly to come and to heal, people who were amazed with great amazement, and people who said, we have never seen anything like this before. Mark does not neglect the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, but reveals the fact, and many of you are familiar with Mark 10:45, the Son of Man came to seek, uh, to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. He came to serve. He came to serve. That's Mark. And it's interesting to me that we have the testimony of Peter. Peter, the outspoken, boisterous. Um, man who spoke quickly and maybe thought just after he spoke sometimes, also himself became a servant, a faithful servant, a servant who was even willing to die for what he believed. And this is part of his story in the book of Mark. So Jesus is the compassionate servant sent by God and servant of God, and he is our ransom that was paid for us. That's Mark. Let me mention John. And then we'll spend a few minutes with a quick view at Luke. We'll come back next week and do a little bit more introductory work with Luke. And then we'll begin to dig into the text after that. The Gospel of John. I love the Gospel of John. I mean, I like them all, but for some reason I just, I tend to pick up the Gospel of John and read it more. It it, it is a book that states things with simplicity and yet absolutely profound depth. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So simple. But who can understand it? All things were made by him. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. In him was light. All of these wonderful truths. The apostle John, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder, whose mother evidently welded some level of influence or liked to play political games, uh, tried to manipulate for her sons to have first and second chair in the kingdom, these are the men that God used to write a book that has touched millions and millions of lives. Well, by the time John is writing, he is, maybe he's just old and slowing down. Maybe he's learned a thing or two of wisdom along the way. But he is a man of profound depth, a fisherman with an elementary school education in the local synagogue. But like many of our forefathers in this country with an eighth grade one-room schoolhouse education, they could work circles around us with writing and math. And they knew history like the back of their hand. John is no ignorant man. He's a man of profound thought and depth. John is writing his eyewitness account of Jesus' ministry some 30 years after the other Gospels have been written. 
and he has probably read them over and over. And so he knows what Matthew said, and he knows what Mark said, and he knows what Luke has said, and he is reflecting on his thoughts about who Jesus Christ is. And so sometime in the late 80s or 90s A.D., after all of these years of growing and reflecting and observing life and ministry, after living through the persecutions from the Romans and the Jews of the first century, after seeing many thousands, perhaps tens of thousands of Christian people burned at the stake, burned as torches in the chariot races of Rome, and put to death in other ways after hearing of the deaths of Paul and Peter and James and many, many others, both in Jerusalem and in Rome and in many other places, John has had much time to think. John himself has been in prison. He's been, ex later on at least, exiled to the island of Patmos where he writes the book of Revelation. When John writes his gospel, he's the last of the 12 apostles to remain alive. I'm glad he wrote the book. I'm glad he wrote it when he did. So his account is different. He spends more time on the details of conversations with people. He spends more time looking in depth at a few selected encounters of the individual people with whom Jesus talked. He's the one who tells us about Nicodemus coming at night. He's the one who tells us about the conversation with the woman at the well. All of the disciples were there, right? But he tells us. He's the one who uses the signs, some of the selected signs of the Lord Jesus to point out Jesus' character his power as the Son of God, his coming in truth and righteousness, his coming as the God of heaven, showing him to be both God and man. It is in John's gospel that Jesus is for the first time presented as the Word, the Logos. He is presented as the great I Am, with so many very specific, obvious references to the Old Testament. I am the door, I am the bread of life, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, I am the light, and so on. We have him presented as the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. We have him presented as the one who is tabernacled among us in the flesh, full of grace and truth. It sounds, some of it, so simple, and yet it's so deep. Some of it sounds complex, and yet it's very direct. It's an amazing gospel. It's a gospel in which God is referred to as the Father more than 100 times where Jesus refers to himself over and over again as the Son. Father and the Son. Nothing complicated about that, but who among us understands it? This is John. Don't you love the Gospel of John? Well, that takes us back to the Gospel of Luke. Luke's Gospel, written by a man who did not probably ever see Jesus, probably never heard him preach, probably never saw him do a miracle, never had a meal with him, probably never met Joseph. probably didn't even live in Israel when Jesus was in Israel. We don't know much about Luke. We meet him over in Acts chapter 16, and, and there he's over in western Turkey, we call it today, Asia Minor, over toward Ephesus and that end of, of that peninsula. 
And when we meet him, he's a traveling companion of Paul, already been saved. I think, personally, he probably got saved somewhere in one of those churches of Asia Minor. Possibly on one of Paul's earlier trips. Maybe he got saved in one of the churches after Paul left town and somebody else was preaching and teaching. We don't know. But he was a medical doctor. He was highly trained. He was well-educated, not only in medicine, but his writings, Luke and Acts, are some of the highest level of Greek writing and grammar and literature that we have in the New Testament. He was, he was very well-spoken. He wrote with the intention, at which he tells us at the beginning of Luke, if you want to notice that, we're going to come back to these verses, but if you notice those first four verses of Luke, "...inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Now we'll talk more about this next week, but Theophilus was probably a Roman official. Some think that he was a Roman official who was either going to help Paul in his trials, uh, legal trials, or... Uh, perhaps before whom Paul would stand in some legal trial. We don't know for sure. <clears throat> but many think that during the time when Luke was traveling with Paul, and then you remember in uh, the book of Acts, Paul was detained by the Roman guards in Jerusalem when the Jews were going to kill Paul. I mean, they were, they were beating him. They were trying to kill him. And the Romans stepped in and rescued Paul and he's the one who ended up in jail for years. He ended up for two years down at Caesarea by the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Two years in prison. Well, Luke is his traveling companion, his, probably his personal physician, and, uh, and documenting the book of Acts for us. So what's Luke going to do for two years while... Paul's down there twiddling his thumbs in jail. Many people believe that it was during those two years that Luke probably traveled around the land of Israel interviewing firsthand witnesses, eyewitnesses of the ministry of Jesus Christ. Many think that he interviewed Mary because of the detailed nature of the accounts that are given in the Gospel of Luke. Many People think that he traveled the breadth of the country, up and down, looking for people who had met the Lord Jesus, interviewing perhaps as many of the other apostles as he could find, and interviewing them and asking them questions about their ministry and taking meticulous notes. The details of the book of Luke are the evidence of a man who was very careful in his work, not a man who was haphazard in any way which you would appreciate if you were going to him as a doctor, right? And so it is probably during those two years that Luke compiled this record, both of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ and then the book of Acts also. And, and in a sense, what he appeared to be doing was being putting together a legal file to present to the Roman officials why Paul is in the situation he is in. Both Luke and Acts are addressed to the Roman official Theophilus. They're both written as a careful explanation of the history, of the beginning of the gospel, and the continuation of the gospel. And by the way, both of those books, Luke and Acts, are directed toward a Gentile audience. They are written with uh, Luke's desire in a companionship with Paul. Paul was known as the gospel to the Gentiles. Peter was the, gospel, the, the apostle to the Jews. Paul, he went to the Jew first, but then he also went to the Gentiles. He was God's apostle to the Gentiles. Luke is his companion. 
The reason the book of Acts doesn't tell us a lot about Peter's ministry and John's ministry and, and uh, all the other, you know, all the other disciples is because it was following the ministry of Paul to the Gentiles, written by Luke. His heart is for the Gentiles to hear the gospel. And so he writes his gospel as the first part of a presentation that he is putting together of the beginning of the gospel. And then the book of Acts, the continuation of the gospel. So the records that are indicated, included here, show Luke's intense interest as a physician. We find all kinds of observations. Uh, <clears throat> he was a man uh, who was very uh, purposeful and careful in recording facts. He's the one who includes facts about the conception of birth of Jesus that are not brought to light in any of the other gospel accounts. He's the one who records details of Mary's extended family, of the aging couple, Zacharias and Elizabeth. These things would have been very interesting to him as a medical doctor. Okay, how old were you when you conceived? Uh-huh. When did you first notice you were pregnant? You know, it's like you can just hear the doctoral mind going as he's interviewing some of these people. He's the one who records the experiences of Zacharias and Elizabeth, not only throughout the conception, uh, but the pregnancy of John the Baptist and the work of the forerunner as Jesus the Messiah. It is Luke who records detailed conversation between the angel Gabriel and Mary and, uh, and, and that miraculous uh, conception that is recorded there. By the way, in the opening section of Luke, you'll notice uh, he likes to pair things together. He uses that as a literary tool. You have, you have two angelic announcements. You have two surprised parents. You have two births. You have two boys. There are several pairs there that go on. There are some differences, but there's a lot of things that are paired together as similarities in the opening, opening section. Luke is going to mention the Holy Spirit more than the other two synoptic Gospels, Matthew and Mark. Um, this is an interesting observation that someone has made because Luke is presenting to us in large part the truth that Jesus is the Son of Man. Now you'll find the phrase the Son of Man and the Son of God throughout the Gospels. It's not like only Luke mentions Jesus as the Son of Man. They're all presenting the fact that he was both God and man at the same time. He was the Son of God and he was the Son of Man. When somebody understands that, please, you know, write a book. We all believe it. It's true, but it is mind-boggling. Luke's emphasis is going to be on Jesus as the Son of Man. He is going to show the genuine humanity of Jesus. He is going to show various elements. He's the one who tells us more about the boyhood. In fact, he's the only one who tells us about the boyhood, the childhood. What little we know of Jesus as a child, we know because of the Gospel of Luke. He is the one who records for us. Also, his divine sonship, he's the one who records for us the conversation when Jesus uh, remained behind in Jerusalem and his parents started traveling home and they came back and found him in the temple and he said, did you not know that I must be about the things of my father? His father in heaven. So both son of God and son of man. I mentioned the Holy Spirit being mentioned uh, in the Gospel of Luke many times and I think that's an emphasis on the fact that Jesus as the son of man needed the anointing of the Holy Spirit to both authorize, approve, and enable his ministry. Now, Jesus, as the Son of God, had the power to do it. But remember, the Father sent the Son and sent the Spirit to minister to the Son. If you have questions about that, ask somebody else. But, I mean, we find that throughout the Gospels. The Spirit of God ministered to the Son of God. Folks, if he needed it, who are we? 
to try to get through a day without asking God for his strength and his grace, my word. So we have um, the Holy Spirit. Uh, John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit before he was even born. When you figure that one out, let me know. John's mother, Elizabeth, was filled with the Holy Spirit. John's father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit. That's all in the first chapter. The conception of the, of the Lord Jesus was brought about by the Holy Spirit. That's also in the first chapter. The Holy Spirit is the one who reveals to the aged Simon that he will see the Messiah before he dies. John the Baptist is the one who announces that the one who's coming after him will be baptized with the Spirit and with fire. When Jesus himself is baptized, the Holy Spirit depends upon him, descends upon him. Jesus is led out by the Spirit into the wilderness. Later, Jesus returns to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. All of these things are references showing that Jesus is fulfilling some of the elements of the prophet Isaiah. When Jesus went to the synagogue in Luke 4, and he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. He is claiming to be the Hebrew Messiah from the book of Isaiah. The anointed one is Messiah in the Hebrew, the word Christ in the Greek. So we find the Holy Spirit involved with the anointing of work of, upon Christ, enabling him, conception, boyhood, babyhood, childhood, extended family, baptism, temptation, inauguration to ministry. And that's just the first three or four chapters. Luke. Luke, in his conversations with people collecting eyewitness accounts, he, uh, he records six miracles that are not included by any other writers. He got that information from talking to people. Luke documents 15 more parables and stories in the teachings of Christ that the other writers don't include at all. So we have miracles that we don't find anywhere else. We have stories and parables that we don't find anywhere else. And so as we go into the Gospel of Luke, we're going to find this as an underlying thought that the Lord Jesus, this dear man Jesus of Nazareth, is the Son of God. He is the Son of Man. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. We're going to see a connection, I believe, also to the Hebrew concept of the year of the Jubilee, the acceptable year of the Lord, a year of rejoicing for the Lord's deliverance of the slave from slavery those in bondage being set free. We'll look at that some more next week. One last thing that's unique to Luke, and this is just something interesting to throw in, it is in the book of Luke that we find the story of Zacchaeus, that wonderful favorite story we love to tell the kids and sing the song, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. It was Luke, it's Luke, who records this story of Zacchaeus. Here's something to think about. Zacchaeus was in Jericho, which is the lowest city on the face of the earth. So here you have Jesus going to the lowest place on the earth, to a man who's a tax collector. He's the lowest kind of person and he's the shortest man in town. Isn't that fun? Luke noticed that detail. And then ironically, Zacchaeus climbs up in a tree. And Jesus calls to him and says, salvation has come to this house today. Why? For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus came to seek and to save. He came down into the lowest places of the earth to find the lowest of the people with the least of ability and to save them. And you and I can be very thankful for that.
a wonderful gospel, this gospel of Luke. I trust that God will enrich us as we look at it, that we might open our eyes to see what Luke desires for us to see, and may the Spirit of God be our teacher as we move ahead. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you this night for your goodness and your mercy. Thank you for these gospels. Father, we have many a time sat in a chair and read through the gospels and imagined the scene. We've seen in our mind's eye the Sea of Galilee. We've seen the bread being broken. We've, we've seen the disciples walking up a hill. We've heard the conversation. We've tried to put ourselves in those places. We've un tried to understand. We've, we've looked at the miracles. We've seen the power of God displayed in Christ, the glory of our Savior. We've seen the compassion and the love of our Savior for, for mankind, and we're exhorted at every hand because we, we are fall so far short of every perfect thing that he did. He went around ministering to the weak and the lame and the sick, and the halt, the rejected, the outcasts, the sinners, the vile, the wicked, the self-righteous, the religious, and he offered them all the same thing. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Father, tonight as we begin this study, I pray that you will help us to open our hearts and read the words of Luke, to walk with him, to listen to him, uh, to listen with him to the stories of his eyewitnesses as they tell us about Jesus. We want to hear. We want to learn. We want to see him. We want to know him. We want to walk more closely with him. Father, open our eyes that we may see. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.